like for you to turn the Bible you have to the book of 2 Samuel chapter 9. I want us to look at a study entitled Grace in a Barren Place. Lofton Hudson um, was a man who founded the Midwestern Christian Counseling Center up in Kansas City. I have uh, met that wonderful Christian man. He's a unique person and uh, was, at one time was counseling a young man that I referred to Dr. Hudson who was coming down to Lubbock, Texas once a week to do counseling there and had the opportunity of, of sitting in on a counseling session with him. Watched him hypnotize a young man and uh, uh, deal with him in interpersonal relationship which is another story. Well, he was counseling a fellow one time and he was uh, doing a kind of a word association, association with him to kind of to diagnose the man's psychological profile. And he threw out words to him and he threw out the word grace. And he was uh, getting these words feedback from what the fellow thought first when he heard these certain words. And he threw out the word grace and the guy said, she's a blue-eyed blonde. Well, Dr. Hudson liked that answer. He, in fact, he wrote a book. The ninth book he wrote was titled, Grace is Not a Blue-Eyed Blonde. Grace describes what happens between two persons. One giving himself to another and accepting another and responsibility for another. It's a distinctive kind of relating in a world where people um, quarrel and fight with one another and possess and dominate and manipulate one another. It's one person accepting and confronting another in freedom and responsibility. Now the word grace is misunderstood and is used in many senses. If it's used for to describe a ballerina, and it often is, we mean that she is well coordinated and, and graceful. When we talk about saying grace at meals, it's used in relation to prayer. And when we talk about some woman or person being a woman of grace, we mean that she is elegant and dignified. We use grace in relation to many things. But every once in a while, you happen upon, at least in the scripture, an illustration of grace, a picture of it. I think tonight, the, second, uh, the ninth chapter of 2 Samuel has the greatest illustration in the Old Testament of grace. And it has to do with David's kindness to, I don't have to lick my lips because this is a tough name, Mephibosheth. David's kindness to a, man, to a young man named Mephibosheth. Easy for you to say. Yeah, I can see you grinning. In the ninth chapter, uh, let me set the context. David is reflecting on the past, upon recent days, and upon the distant past, and he comes in his mind to thoughts of Jonathan, his friend. 
the relationship that Jonathan had with David and David with Jonathan is a unique one. We, we can't understand that today because of the problems today in men relating to men. But they had a marvelous relationship, a deep, intimate relationship. And David's thinking of Jonathan, his friend. He thinks of Saul, the man he replaced on the throne, and the promises he has made in the past to these two men. And he says in verse 1, Then David said, Is there not yet anyone left of the house of Saul that I may show him kindness? Now the word needs to be underlined. It means to be more than just, you know, let him ahead of you in the traffic line. It means grace in the purest sense. Is there anyone left in Saul's house that I can bestow undeserved favor upon for Jonathan's sake? Now in the outline, we're at the part of understanding the truth of it. I want to give you what grace, understand what, what we're, where we're going in this. Grace is positive acceptance in spite of the other person in spite of that person, in spite of you, I accept you. Takes a little doing, takes a lot of doing, but in spite of him, I accept David, Eaton, and uh, a few other guys. I'm kidding because he's my friend. It is the positive acceptance in spite of the other person. It's the demonstration of love that is not deserved and can never be repaid. Can you write that down there? It is the demonstration of a love that is not deserved and can never be repaid. Now why did he want to show this kind of love to someone? Is there anyone left that I can demonstrate my love that that is not deserved and can never be repaid. There, what a longing in, the man, in a man's heart, totally unlike us in the, modern, in the modern age. Isn't there anybody that I can demonstrate undeserved love upon and expect nothing in return? Now what were these promises that, that uh, uh, David had made? The first is found to Jonathan in 1 Samuel chapter 20. So just give a little flip left and we'll get that verse 13. 1 Samuel 20 verse 13. If it please my father to do you harm, may the Lord do so to Jonathan and more also if I do not make it known to you and send you away that you may go in safety. And may the Lord be with you as he has been with my father. And if I am still alive, will you not show me the kindness of the Lord that I may not die? Jonathan's talking. And you shall not cut off your loving kindness from my house forever, not even when the Lord cuts off every one of the enemies of David from the face of the earth. So Jonathan made a covenant with the house of David saying, May the Lord require it at the hands of David's enemies. And Jonathan made David vow again because of his love for him, because he loved him as he loved his own life. Now, in, Eastern, in the Eastern dynasty, when, when a new king took over, the previous dynasty was exterminated. 
I mean, just wiped out, killed every one of them in order to prevent revolt. And so Jonathan comes and he makes David vow to him that he will not exterminate, will not kill him or his, uh, or, or his house. That's the promise he made. All right? The vow to Saul is found in 1 Samuel 24, verses 20 and 22. Would you look at that? 1 Samuel 24, 20 and 22. Saul is talking, now behold, I know that you shall surely be king and that the kingdom of Israel shall be established in your hand. So now swear to me by the Lord that you will not cut off my descendants after me, that you will not destroy my name from my father's household. And David swore to Saul and Saul went to his home, but David and his men went up to the stronghold. Second vow. So David asked, is there anyone left whom I, to whom I might demonstrate my love? He asked, is there anyone? There's no qualification involved. When it's grace, there's no qualification. Doesn't matter who they are, what they've done. Is there anyone upon whom I can demonstrate my love? Now verse 2, back to chapter 9 of 2 Samuel. There is someone. Now watch this. Now there was a servant of the house of Saul whose name was Ziba and they called him to David and the king said to him, Are you Ziba? And he said, I am your servant. And the king said, Is there not yet anyone of the house of Saul to whom I may show the kindness of God? And Ziba said to the king, There is still a son of Jonathan who is crippled in both feet. Now you can just kind of feel in this a, a kind of a, a kind of a, a, a reluctance there. You, you can almost hear him saying, "Better think twice before you make a, before you demonstrate your love without qualification." There is one left, but he really doesn't fit these surroundings. He's a cripple and he walks on crutches. He doesn't carry himself with the dignity of a king. If you make a commitment to this man, it's going to really cost you because he's a cripple. What did David say? Say, where is he? He doesn't ask how it happened or how bad he is, but in full acceptance, he says in verse 4, so the king said to him, where is he? And Ziba said to the king, behold, he is in the house of Mekur, the son of Amiel in Lodibar. Now the word Lodibar is a, is a clue word. It's a word that means no pasture land. No pasture land. Desert, wilderness. A place of desolation. Now, now get the picture. Here is a man who is a cripple and both feet, hasn't walked since he was five years old and he lives in this barren wasteland of Palestine. And there's the man that's left on whom David has committed to demonstrate his love. Now the custom was to exterminate everyone from the uh, deposed dynasty. And, and so this young man, Mephibosheth, had been hiding out and there was this servant, Ziba, who knew exactly where he was. 
Now, there's only one place in the Scripture that explains how this young man was a cripple. It's the fourth chapter of, in verse 4 of 2 Samuel. Look at it with me. Now Jonathan saw son, had a son crippled in his feet. He was five years old when the report of Saul and Jonathan came from Jezreel. And his nurse took him up and fled. Now here was, here's the picture. They heard that David had, had, had taken over the dynasty, had taken over the throne, and knowing the custom that, that they would be exterminated, the, the, the nurse picked up this five-year-old boy and was running with him. And, he, and, 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 it, and while they were hurrying, she fell, and he became lame. Now in their fear and uh, haste to, to, to escape the king who was taken over, this little boy at the age of five had, had fell with his nurse and for the rest of his life had been a cripple, had not walked since he was five. Now back to chapter nine. Then David sent and brought him from the house of Mekur, the son of Amiel from Lodibar, and Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, came to David and fell on his face and prostrated himself. And David said, Mephibosheth, and he said, here is your servant. Now, now here's the demonstration of grace in a barren place, in a desert land. He said, and David said to him, do not fear, for I will surely show kindness to you for the sake of your father Jonathan, and will restore you all the land of your grandfather, Saul, and you shall eat at my table regularly. Again he prostrated himself and said, What is your servant that you should regard a dead dog like me? Then the king called Saul's servant Ziba and said to him, All that belong to Saul and, all, and, and to all his house I have given to your master's grandson. And you and your sons and your servants shall cultivate the land for him. I mean, we're going to fix the crop for this guy. Shall cultivate the land for him, and you shall bring in the produce so that your master's grandson may have food. Nevertheless, Mephibosheth, your master's grandson, shall eat at my table regularly. He's not only going to get the produce of the crop, he's going to eat at the king's table. Now Ziba had 15 sons and 20 servants. Then Ziba said to the king, according to all that my lord the king commands his servant, so your servant will do. So Meshibosheth ate at David's table as one of the king's sons. And Meshibosheth had a young son whose name was Micah, and all who lived in the house of Ziba were servants to Meshibosheth. So Meshibosheth lived in Jerusalem, for he ate at the king's table regularly. Now, he said, and then there's that little postscript to just nail down the picture of God, of, of the grace of David. Now, he was lame in both feet. Uh, Carl Menninger of Menninger, Menninger Clinics has written a book called The Vital Balance. And in this book, he describes 
um, what he calls the negative and the, and the positive personalities. And he says, the person with a negative personality is a person who says no to everything. He's what you, he's your, your parents, you know, say no to everything. Not really, but that's the way we, that's the way we feel. A guy with a negative personality is a guy who says no to everything. He never makes a bad loan, he says, and he never votes for a liberal cause. He says no to everything. And in this book, The Vital Balance, he tells a story at one time where some men were fording a, a, a river and it was a dangerous uh, crossing and Thomas Jefferson was crossing with these men at the time he was president in the United States. And he had crossed over on the other side and he was uh, um, uh, going back to the other side to help others across and a man asked him to help him across and, and, and Thomas Jefferson helped this guy ford this, this raging river. On the other side, a man came up to, 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 to the fellow and said, why did you ask the President of the United States to help you cross the river? He said, I didn't know he was a President of the United States. He said, I only know that in the faces of some, I saw the answer no. In the faces of others, in the face of that man, I saw the answer yes. Now David came and knelt down over this boy, lame in both feet, and he looked up into his face and he saw the answer yes. He said, I'll tell you what I'm gonna do, I'm gonna take you to my home I'm going to give you everything that your grandfathers had. I'm going to restore what you lost when I took the dynasty. And you're going to eat at my table as my son. Now what, would it, what, what was it like to sit at David's table? Someone has described it. He said, well, the dinner bell rings and they all come in. There's this great table, David's children. There's uh, Am, Amnon. He's tremendous, he's a dynamic personality. He comes in first, he's just kind of the leader of the group. Then comes Joab, this masculine man, tanned by being outdoors. He was a, he's a macho man. Then comes in Absalom. The Bible says, from the crown of his head to the sole of his feet, he was without blemish. And there's Tamar, a beautiful and gorgeous woman their sister, half-sister. And there's, there is uh, Solomon who comes out of the study. He's been in there all day. And they all sit around the table, but they can't eat until another arrives. And all of a sudden they hear this clump, 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 clump. And they look around and there comes the other to the table. They're waiting on him. His name is Meshibosheth. And he sits down and eats at the king's table just as one of his sons. That's grace in a barren place. Now I see eight analogies. Now that's not going to take us too long. Eight seems like a long time. But if it were eight minutes left to play and Washington had the ball, you wouldn't think it's too long. <laughs> so hang in there. Um, Eight, eight analogies. Number one, once Meshibosheth enjoyed fellowship with the king uninterrupted. I mean, at one time, his grandfather was the king. And he enjoyed a fellowship in that palace with that king uninterrupted. So it was with Adam before the fall. 
There was a time in the garden where Adam and God had this marvelous fellowship. No one has ever had that kind of relationship with God since. An uninterrupted fellowship. And they enjoyed in that marvelous garden this interplay between God and His and the wonder of his creation, and there was no sin, uninterrupted fellowship. Number two, when distortion and fear came, the people fled, and Meshibosheth suffered a fall that left him crippled for the rest of his life. And when sin came into the garden, fear struck man, and this wonderful fellowship was destroyed. And instead of acceptance, man feared God and he hid from him. And this marvelous garden was violated. And because of the fall, man has gone as a cripple for the rest of his days. Number three. David the king, out of sheer love for Jonathan, demonstrated grace to a cripple. And so it is that the Lord, out of sheer love for his son, has demonstrated grace to us who have been marred by sin. Number four. The cripple had nothing, he deserved nothing. And he didn't try to win the king's favor. Likewise, man deserves nothing, has nothing, has nothing to order, offer to God. And when he found us, we were hiding. Look back over your life. Now, some of you here tonight can remember not too many days in the past when you had nothing, you deserved nothing, and you offered God nothing. And when God came to you, He came searching for you. The great truth of the Scripture is not man's quest for God, but God's relentless search for man. He came seek, seeking you, and when he found you, he found you hiding in fear. Number five, David restored this man from the place of barrenness to the place of honor, and God has done that for us. He restores us in grace from the place of barrenness to his table, to the seat of honor. Number six, David adopted this boy, this young man, into his own family, and he became the king's son with all the rights and privileges of the natural sons. God does that for the believing sinner. Something very special happens when you and I are saved. 
when we experience salvation. The scripture not only talks about regeneration, talks about adoption, and it relates to that legal position that we receive from God. The place that has the right to everything God possesses, God owns. Number seven, the cripple's limp. The cripple's limp was a constant reminder of grace. Every time he went to take a step, every limp reminded him of the grace of God. It reminded him of this. It caused him to say in his mind, it is in this, I'm in this place because grace has placed me here, had nothing else. And for us, the continual problem with sin is a constant reminder of grace. The continuous struggle with evil and sin in our own life is a constant reminder that we are part of God's family only because of His grace. Finally, number eight, when Meshibosheth sat down at the table, he was treated like any other son. Now, I imagine that there's going to be a, a future table somewhere. You know, the Bible talks about sitting down in the kingdom of Abraham, you know, at the great feast and banquet. And we're going to all be sitting there. And, and the amazing thing, you know, we're going to be sitting there with Peter and John and Paul. And um, I, don't, I don't know about you, I got a few questions, uh, you know, I'm going to ask, I think. And, but the thing that's going to be an amazing, the most amazing thing about it all is that where men like Paul and men like Peter and James and John are sitting, I'm going to be sitting right alongside of them. Because in the grace of God, we're all sinners. This is the doomed and the damned redeemed. And at God's table, we're all the same. Because God just makes, takes something, takes nothing and makes something out of it. That's the activity of His grace.